0: So the internet fundamentally reorganizes and changes the role for marketers. But in doing so, I think it really blows up the concept of what a brand was because I don't have to have a relationship with a brand anymore. I can go right to the company. I don't need the brand. The brand is in my way. So that's why I say brands are dead.
1: Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketers.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profits by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll be will notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one conversation if you need any help. In episode 11 of everyonehatesmarketers.com, I inter- I'm interviewing Jonathan Salim baskin Uh, He's the founder of Arcadia Lab, which helps businesses to communicate about innovation. He has 30 years of experience in marketing. He worked for Blockbuster, for Apple, Nissan, Edelman. He's also a contributor for Forbes. He has a lot of experience in marketing. And he's quite a contrarian, uh, just like me, I believe. And he firmly believes that brands are dead which is a very bold statement. But he's not just saying that to shock people. He actually believes in it. And he offers a very, very good alternative. So this episode is quite different from from the others because it's really about changing your point of view about something that everybody considers as a given, as a truth. But it really challenges this truth and tells you that it's not necessarily what, what people should, should think, especially not what should marketers think. And more importantly, he's also offering a very, very strong alternative. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi Jonathan. Hey Louis. Thank you so much for taking your time to
0: talk to me today. Yeah, my pleasure.
1: I have a first question for you. Um, how did you fall in love with marketing?
0: Wow. Great first question. So uh, yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm one of those geeks that actually uh, in college dreamed of working in the advertising biz. I actually had a subscription to Advertising Age delivered to my dorm room every week. And my interest was really, um, you know, I was interested in words. I was interested in ideas. And I felt that marketing was the place where I could put those topics and those interests of mine not just into practice, but really to test. I like the idea of versus um, just being a, a single a person with a single idea or issue that I promoted, or for that matter, for that matter, a business I propose, uh, I promoted. Um, and instead, being in a position to constantly, uh, you know, attack different challenges and 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 take on different tasks. So, um, I would say I fell in in love with marketing um, when I was eighteen years old, and uh, and and the love affair continues.
1: Um, it's funny because, like, receiving mar- you said marketing magazines, right? That you got. Yeah. uh that's quite nerdy right yeah, uh, terribly uh, and my my fiance will always make fun of me because i'm a big nerd as well uh, but i don't I don't take that <laughs> as a as a as a bad thing uh, at all I think it's good but I'd like to dig deeper into you you mentioned in a in an interview that one of the reasons why you fell in love with marketing was for a particular because of a mm-hmm. particular t v ad Oh yes,
0: <laughs> you've done your your homework. So, yeah. So, um, you know, again, I'm I I won't reveal my age, but I've been around for a while. And um, there was a TV commercial that was very popular when I was uh, in my teens, and it was for something called High Karate Cologne and you can you can you find it on youtube and 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 the the quick 30 well back then it was probably a minute long spot i mean that's that tells you how old i am the the spot had this geeky guy with glasses on who reminded me of me because again i was that nerd walking into this party after having kind of sort of you know covered himself in this high karate cologne and the women in the party go so nuts for him that he has to fight them off with karate because they're just they can't they they're just they're attacking him they're just so attracted to him he's like a wild you know strange attractor magnet guy and I, I thought to myself wow I, I want that cologne I, I, I want to be that guy really and so I actually as a teenager you know saved my money went and bought the cologne and it didn't work and i thought it's funny i mentioned this story in an event a couple years ago and some guy in the audience raised his hand and said well worked for me so but i think the bigger issue was this this promise this brand promise that was obviously worked was simply not true and you know shame on me for believing it but shame on the brand for promoting it it And and it started me along a path that I didn't know at the time, but really along a path that led me to always striving for more clarity, more transparency, and more truthfulness in communications. And that it's one thing to be able to convince and inspire people to do something, but it's quite another thing to actually inspire them and inform them of the way things really are and still have their loyalty and their business and to me that's the that became the bigger aha for me Um, but again i didn't know that at the time but looking backwards yeah it kind of that's that started me along the track toward truthfulness and understanding and communications
1: i don't know if there is the brand called links in the us as well have you heard of it uh, I have okay, not. so maybe it's a european thing, uh but there is this 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 um aftershave type of product like shower gel, <laughs> that kind of products that are being advertised in Ireland and in France. I've seen it other uh, mm-hmm. elsewhere as well, and it's exactly the same concept, pretty much the same concept than the t v ad you <laughs> described, which is like this guy who's sharing with this beautiful like shower gel that smells so nice and and then women would just you know literally run. Uh, into him because they they want a piece <laughs> of him. So yeah, I guess they didn't find they didn't innovate too much in this ad. They probably just took the idea.
0: Well, well, or 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 it really does work mm. this time. And if so, I'm sorry, I need to write this down. What's the name of this brand? I'm going to have to look into <laughs> it's it. Links, Lynx. L Y N X. Cool. <laughs> um,
1: so I'm curious. Then I I always try to get deeper into who I'm talking to because I guess you know yep. it's it's as important as what you can tell us about marketing or branding. So. You you kind of fell in love with, with marketing this way and you had your first job with the Edelman agency mm-hmm. after a while. So what happened between like your youth, like when you were 16, 18 and your first job? What did you study? What did you do?
0: Oh, uh, well, so I, I I went to a small college in, in, in Maine in, in the far north of New England in the United States, a little small school called Colby College in the middle of nowhere. And I actually majored in English literature with a specialty in romantic poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent uh, and I started a rock band. I played synthesizer. And um, so I, I spent four years reading literature in the forest And poetry in particular. And, you know, without building too much into it or reading too much into it, no pun intended on the reading part, but the value of literature as a window into many of the themes and topics that I would end up working on in marketing is again, one of those things that in retrospect makes perfect sense to me. But at the time, I wasn't necessarily trying to be strategic about it. I, I simply was interested in, in, in literature. I loved reading. I love poetry. I loved hearing and reading poetry aloud, which I think is a Something missing in our lives today, generally. But a lot of those topics, you know, I I actually dated a a woman in college who was a classics major, so she was busy translating Latin and Greek, and I I I took four years of Latin also, and that's where we met. And we used to talk about geek. We used to write each other love notes in Latin. (laughs) But and she she had an interesting position on literature and on these themes that I was exploring through reading the Romantics in particular. And she said, you know, whatever the theme, whatever the topic, um, there's a Greek or Latin poet or playwright who thought the same th- and said the same thing. And she was pretty, uh, she was excellent. I mean, she was an A plus student. So, you know, I, we almost got into this geeky sort of competition where I'd say, um, you know, well, what about the Keats poem about losing a vision of perfection and the the, the crushing blow of, you know, blah, 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 that, that human emotion and how brilliantly expressed? It? And she'd say, oh, yeah, Aeschylus did that 2000 <laughs> years ago. And. <laughs> And, and she was brilliant at it, and it, and it was so, – but still for me, this idea that literature and art um, may be going all the way back to um, ancient times to give her credit where credit's due um, – was touching on and exploring a lot of the same themes and ideas that I would end up exploring, uh, touching and exploring as a marketer and as a communicator. And I think that, you know, without pushing it too far, you could argue that here we are at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, looking at this new era of ours. I'm fascinated by how much it really also resembles every other era, era in that we human beings tend to not change anywhere near as fast as our technology or our opinions about ourselves. And, and so that, that so I, that's what I spent four years doing. I mean, again, at the time, what I spent four years doing was, you know, reading poetry and going to parties in the forest. And my band was playing, you know, psychedelic furs songs and, you know, the clash and having a great time. So, uh, um, that, that's what I spent four years. doing.
1: And after those four years, what did you do to end up working for this agency?
0: Oh, so so I grew up in Chicago, which is the the third largest city here in the United States and grew up in the city. So when I graduated from college and came back home, it took me about a nanosecond before I realized I really couldn't find a job or wanted to be working in Chicago. I needed to be in a bigger city and I wanted to be in New York. So I just, uh, this is again, back in the old days before people did a lot of really pre-thought um, about <laughs> where or what they were going to do. So I pretty much just announced to my family I'm moving to New York and got on an airplane and started looking for a job in advertising agencies. And I, I tried and, and I was writing uh, scripts for TV shows, thinking I might do that. And I and I was interviewing for creative positions in ad agencies. And um, after about six months of doing that and living, kind of burning through every friend and like distant relative who was willing to let me live with them in, in, in New York City, uh, it came time to the end of the year. And my dad, credit to him, said, sounds like you're doing great. Um, Guess what? Um, Unless you find a job before the end of the year, um, you're coming home. And at that point, he uh, ran a factory that manufactured hospital supplies. And he said, I'll give you a job. And I remember the conversation because I, I actually remembering it now, I sort of get a shudder, I, I, I like shake. And uh, at that point, I broadened my search and said, I'm going to look at PR agencies and I'm not going to demand I'm in a creative role per se. I simply need to be in the communications agency world. And that led me up to a much longer list of places, one of which was Edelman. And I went into the Edelman office there. And at the time, Richard Edelman, who's the son of the founder, had just graduated from business school, and there were about 10 or 12 people in the New York office. Um, the company was based in Chicago. And I met him, and he pretty much said, um, I worked on a financial services, as a commodity trader client when I was in business school part-time. Now that I'm running the office, um, if you know anything about PR, could you run this thing starting the next day? To which, of course, I lied and said, Sure. So, uh I got a job and I was able to avoid working in the hospital supply factory and um my first account was a company called Conti Commodity Services which was a subsidiary of a big agribusiness called Continental Grain and um I was a financial services publicist um which I learned how to do pretty quickly. <laughs> uh,
1: I can sense from your personality and this story that you have a yeah, you have a strong personality. You seem to know what you want and you are not afraid to yeah. to go against the grain sometimes so where do you think it's coming from
0: uh you mean my my personal motivation yeah. my personal like sense describe, of self yes. um, yeah yeah so probably some conscious and some unconscious things right so consciously i'm curious about the world i'm i i don't believe in reincarnation so i am sus- i suspect that my time here is is finite um, so i I have always had a sense ever since I was a little kid of a desire- a desire to be engaged and a desire that you know I, I what it was it that Steve Jobs once said that you know you need to live your every day of your life as if it were your your last i i i'm not that uh, negative about it but um i i 've always been curious and so i 've always kind of want had an appetite for doing different and more things. I think the unconscious part is you know, when you're a, a Caucasian man growing up in mid-century America, you are given a sense of, I don't know if it's entitlement or it's simply assumption that you have the right to explore things and explore different things. And I think I don't want to take too much credit for my what I've done in my life because I think part of it was simply the circumstances that allowed it. In other words, uh, quick quick aside, a, a couple jobs, a job or two after Edelman um, I got a job working at Gray Advertising. And I remember distinctly to this day, I, the moment they introduced me to the team and they were all in the elevator well, you know, 20, 30 people, the floor that I was working on were all you know, there to welcome me. I'm the new guy. And then they presented, literally presented to me the young lady who was going to be my secretary and marched her out and said, meet your secretary. And yeah, and she was very nice and friendly and then walked me in. And it turned out she had the exact same experience as I had. She had gotten better grades in college. She'd been at the agency longer than I was, of course, because I only got there that day. Yet because of the social structure, uh, both formally and sort of unconsciously, you know, all of the givens, she was never encouraged or, or given the sense of, um, empowerment to do what I was doing when arguably she was not only as capable as I was, but as I learned working with her during the, the the following years, she was actually better at it than I was. But because of the social structure, she just she wasn't able to to do that. So I benefited a little bit, not, not a little bit, a lot of bit from the way things were. And I, I, and I and I need to be honest and, and give that credit was where credit is due. Within that context, though, yeah, I, I'm just I'm I'm curious, and I'm as curious today as I was, you know, at, during that first job. That's
1: that's quite yeah, that's quite nice of you to to be honest about this because I don't think that many people would be in this in this situation. And I guess it's good that things are changing in the right direction for in terms of you know salaries between men and women and the role that women have in society. So, but yeah. I, I, so. I was planning to ask you a question yeah. about another story of yours that would, you know, describe who you are today, but you actually said the story. And I think oh. <laughs> which is great. And I think you're a great story uh, storyteller as well. Oh, thank you. Right. So I think I understand a bit more who you are and why you are who you are. Uh, just to explain to the listeners then, so you, you've you've been through uh, after Edelman, you work for Nissan, you work for Blockbuster, you work mm-hmm. for Apple as well you are a contributor yep. for Forbes now and you were a contributor for advertising age and then in uh, 13 years ago you created arcadia labs right mm-hmm. and yep. now you help brands to communicate better about innovation yep um, correct can you remember how you got your very first customer
0: oh yeah explicitly mm-hmm. so i i i was working around the turn of the century um at a systems integrator which was a big thing back then it's hard to remember but you know Back, it was a different time and, and a lot of um, software tools whether they were cloud-based or lo- much more so the, than locally based, um, there was a need to try to get them to work together. So before there were sort of macro supply chain software platforms in the cloud there were elements that commanded different parts of the supply chain. So there was a first-ever computer-based sourcing tool. There was a first-ever computer-based product um, quality checker tool. And so there was a need to integrate these different software tools so that they talk to each other and, and literally translators that that help them build up an enterprise-wide technology solution. And I got involved with a a sort of a cutting-edge one here in Chicago, uh, back around the turn of the century, um, doing all the user experience design. So I led a team of designers, but arguably we were marketers. And and what was fascinating to me was to figure out, you know, how do you get a, let's say, a building contractor on-site, um, out of a construction site, uh, how do you get them to or her to want to open a laptop and and actually, get, you know, engage with this technology tool. You know, this is even early early days of CRM. Um, so we designed those experiences, those heuristics, and analyzed them and designed them. Um, and in doing, in working there, a couple of the other guys there uh, wrote a book about enterprise marketing management (EMM), which was again an emergent idea of kind of doing to the marketing supply chain what. The world was already seeing on the industrial supply chain. So, linking ad creative with uh, market analyses, with even sort of nascent buying tools. It was a, again, it was a, it's weird to think that it's only you know, 15 years ago, but it really was like a different planet. And, and trust me, this, this story does have a punchline. So, these guys were writing this book, and they were like, hey, Jonathan, will you write a chapter? about the importance of customer engagement and 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 not just hoping these tools were self-evident but giving people looking at them as marketing communications vehicles so that you you could build in usability right usability is a is a horrible computer word for loyalty <laughs> and and efficacy uh, you know efficiency and and benefits so i said sure i wrote a chapter for this book promptly forgot about it to the point where I didn't even buy it when it first came out, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, and I get a call from one of the authors, who, who are friends of mine, as well as work associates, about whatever, a year, year and a half later. And he said, hey, Jonathan, um, this guy, uh, this uh, corporate uh, you know, CEO read the book, and he contacted us, and he said he wants to do what you wrote about in your chapter. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay, well, good luck. And he said, no, he wants you to do it. And I'm, well, I, ha- I already have a job. And long, uh, the punchline being, I talked to this guy who was the CEO of a company called Soda Club, which uh, has brands Soda Club and Soda Stream. They make canisters, um, compressed air canisters, so that like you put them in a little coffee maker-looking machine on your desk and it makes sparkling water or sparkling juices. This guy said he wanted to hire me, and he, we came to a great conclusion. So I said, guess what? My consulting firm was just born. So, um, I started out really with a client and, and arguably if I think about it, it was a content marketing success.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and I, right. And I, but I didn't even think of it that way and there was no word for it back then, but, um, that's how I got my first client and, and really built it. From it, there. it
1: sounds like it's, it's really the best way to get your first client, isn't it? It's like, you know, <laughs> the need for it, you do, yeah. You create the company because you have a client waiting to pay you. That's that's the best way to right. start. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I, I really I really like your way of telling stories. I need to keep finding questions to make you tell stories. So I have to rewrite every <laughs> single question I have. Let's let's drill down into marketing and the marketing BS out there. And so sure. I like to get deeper into into the concept of marketing versus branding and all. So the first thing, very simply, right. if you can. Let's cut through the BS. And what does it really mean to innovate?
0: In a a marketing scheme or just innovate generically?
1: Generically, In a company, we talk about innovation all the time or to innovate. What does it really mean? Like in simple terms.
0: Yeah. So I think my definition, Louis, would be innovation. First, what it isn't. It's not a synonym for change. And it's not a synonym for improvement. I think innovation is doing something that surprises you and or your stakeholders challenges the very premises upon which your services or products are based and demands that you think about both who you're serving and how you're serving them in fundamentally new ways so it, 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 i i would i wouldn't go so, so far as to say it's it's Disruptive in, in in that I think there's a whole, a whole bunch of problems with that theology, but um, I think innovation versus just simply improvement and change is really a step change. It's it has it has risk attached to it. It has daring attached to it. It has creativity attached to it. Innovation is not just new but truly different. Um, that's innovation. So it's
1: not incremental. It's more radical.
0: I I think so. I, I just just because I think one of our problems as communicators specifically is that um, if if every improvement or change is innovation, what isn't innovation, right? <laughs> I mean, you you could almost argue that if you resist changing, resisting change is a change. Therefore, it's mm-hmm. innovation. So um, I I think we need to if we're going to talk about innovation, we got to talk about it in more in more clear terms. So. Yeah, I, it, it's it it is a step change. It's it's innovation. Unlike incremental improvement, has to make you a little upset in your stomach. <laughs> if it doesn't do that, it's not innovation. It could be a great idea. It could be a profitable idea, but it's not really innovative.
1: Um, and let's define under two terms. Um, I think there's a lot of okay. of actually three terms. I think there's a lot of of uh, misconception about. Advertising versus marketing versus branding. Can you briefly explain the three because we're going to use those terms in the next few minutes?
0: Yeah. Well, you, you know, I, I wish I could define it and then we could etch it on the tablets and make everybody read them. I don't think there's any agreement on any of the three terms, Louis. So you're absolutely right. So, I mean, the advertising is the easiest, right? Advertising is paid commercial speech. Okay. So any. So you know, the 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 buzzword is paid media. But I would argue owned media is advertising as well. Social media posts by a company are advertising. It's anything a company pays for to put in front of stakeholders is advertising. Uh, Marketing more broadly is a a kind of a bucket for um, all the things a company does to communicate with the outside world and with its internal stakeholders, for that matter. So marketing is, broadly speaking, not only the tools of the marketing department, but it's also in this day and age of internet, avail- you know, transparency and or at least availability. It's really anything a company does that affects its stakeholders is marketing, whether it they acknowledge it as such or not or whether they control it or not um branding is also the easiest thing to say because i think branding doesn't exist
1: fair enough let's stop and and talk about something else uh no why do we why do we even need brands (laughs) We we don't right so why don't we
0: no we don't well there's way too many people whose jobs are dependent on pretending that we do um but I, I I I'm convinced. But it's so funny, actually. There was in mid December 16, I was quoted with this quote comment at a, a conference in at the Wharton School of Business on marketing, and all the branding people on the panel then you know went about just ripping me a new one, telling me you know I'm I'm insane and I'm missing the point. Of course, people need brands. Without getting into too much detail, brands were invented in the 20th century. Brands didn't exist before then. Brands are a function of mass media and expansion of businesses. So, you know, they're back in back in Delft, China days, back uh, you know when they were Delft, uh, Netherlands were building, you know, were making plates and bowls or what have you. There were no brands. There were just businesses interacting with customers. And. The customers had opinions about the businesses, but they weren't separated out into something called a brand. It was their awareness and their exposure of and to the business. Um, They learned about the business directly from their interaction. They learned about the business from others who had interactions with the, with the same business. Um, But then the 20th century came around and businesses because of technology could sell things over greater distances. So that connection between business and customer or business and stakeholder. I mean, you could be working in a factory for a company that was based on the other side of the country or eventually the other side of the world. So you didn't have the capacity to Um, have those interactions that you had directly with the business or directly with other people who had interactions with the business. And instead, what you were given was this mass media intermediary, right? So, you know, you went from reading the local paper that said, here's who stole the horses last week, or here's what the local silversmith is offering to customers, And you went to reading regional and then national and eventually global newspapers, the global wire services. So you have these two things happening, businesses doing business across greater physical distances and media filling the gap virtually, though mass media, right? So they're not customized, but filling, the, if you will, the gap. So the idea of brand was invented to fill in that gap with meaning. So that since I can't interact with my telephone company because the office here in town is just a satellite office, the real people who really matter are 2,000 miles away, I'm going to interact with this idea of friendly neighborhood Ma Bell, and there's going to be a character or there's going to be an icon, a mascot, that's going to have all these associated benefits attached to it. And I'm going to have a relationship with that instead of with the business. And that's, that's, that's what gave birth to branding. It's being able to use this new mass media to create these images and ideas with which customers could interact. And that, that then grew. It took on a life of its own, right? Because once you can start inventing things about businesses, well, hell, you can invent whatever you want. So then you could add things that you never could have added to claims about the business back when the customer actually interacted with and knew about the business right so the local guy who fixes your shoes or better yet the local pharmacist who mixes the cologne if he he or she works down the street from you and you know him or her and it's very hard for him or her to make a bunch of claims that can't be supported or substantiated but once that chemist lives 2,000 miles away, you'll never meet her or him. You'll never hold them accountable. And there's this, and you'll never know them. But there's this intermediary thing in the media called a brand that chemist can say, my cologne will make you irresistible to women. It could tell me anything. It could tell you, it will make you taller. It will make you happier. It will reserve, reverse the flow of time. And therefore, I have no way, because I just have mass media, I have no way to test that other than, my own experience, um, or I could even discount it, which happened over the years near the end of the 20th century, and say, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's just marketing. Yeah, yeah, that's just that's just branding. Whatever. Yeah, no, I yeah, I like it. Who knows?" And I, in other words, you, we we almost learned to discount all those claims. But that's that, that's kind of branding, kind of kind of turned in on itself and became sort of insane. And if you think about all the branding claims that are absolutely unsubstantiable, they they have no reality underneath them. And then you have all these folks who make a living out of promoting them. So that's the 20th century. And then what happens, of course, as I was talking about my job with the systems integrator, then this thing called the internet comes around. And what the internet enables is the same business model that happened before the 20th century. So that even though that chemist is located in, 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 in Indonesia, now I have the capacity, if I'm curious enough and I work hard enough, To learn everything I need to know about him or her before I buy the product. And everything that the marketers put in between us is noise, unless it helps me make those conclusions. So the internet fundamentally reorganizes and changes the role for marketers. But in doing so, I think it really blows up the concept of what a brand was, because I don't have to have a relationship with a brand anymore. I can go right to the company. I don't need the brand. The brand is in my way, so that's why I say brands are dead.
1: I tend to agree. It's a it's a really great explanation, and the the history of businesses really gives us the insight of of that that this branding thing is almost an anomaly in. Uh, in the way business is being done, and thanks to internet, I think we are getting going back to something that is much more human and much more truthful, which is actually the next thing I wanted to talk to you about so in your book, Tell the Truth, you actually talk about the importance mm-hmm. of companies to be truthful um yep. what it blows my mind not that your idea is <laughs> is is actually extraordinary um without you know without disrespecting what you've done. Why do you think businesses have to be reminded that telling the truth is important? I mean, that should be obvious, right?
0: Yeah, you know, my, my friend Seth Godin actually wrote a a, a blurbum, a dust jacket. And he said something like, I don't know why this is a thing, but it's still a yeah. thing. <laughs> um, I, I think the reason that businesses need to be reminded is, is, is actually deeper than that. I think it's, it's businesses need to be taught. I'm not certain it's something they know and have forgotten. I am I think it's something that they've just been uh, sort of trained to disregard or to, again, let – you know, it was funny when I came out with that book and with Branding Only Works on Cattle back in 2008 – the amount of word games back to your question about you know definitions the amount of word games i played with fellow marketers about what a brand was or wasn't and what engagement meant or didn't mean or what it was just it was fascinating to me because what they really were good at doing was complicating a, a subject so that they didn't have to do anything about it It's not that that businesses know that truth is important. It's that they don't know that truth is important. Yet, truth is the ultimate basis upon which customers make, if not their first decision, their repeat decisions. So, And by the way, when the book came out in 2012 on Tell the Truth, the amount of debates I was in with marketers who said, well, but what's truth? I mean, we have that debate yeah. here now in America, right, in our political mm-hmm. thing, right, uh, political situation. But they are like, well, what is truth? Is it, if your truth could be different than my truth. And I said, no, uh, my truth is acknowledging objective reality. I can have a different opinion about it. I can choose to care or not care about it. But truth is a shared perspective on the way things are. And then we can conclude whatever the hell we want. We could change our opinions. We could disregard, right? You can sell me that cologne and say, actually, it really won't attract women. And I can then say, well, then hell, I'm not going to buy it. Or I could say, well, that's okay. I kind of like the smell of it. And you know what? No cologne is going to help me attract women. So what do I care? Yeah, I'll I'll still buy it. You'd never do that as a marketer that bluntly, but that is ultimately kind of where you're at. I mean, it's funny. I was give you another story. I was, um, for that book, I did a college tour here in the U S thinking I'm sick and tired of talking to marketers about truth. I'm going to talk to future marketers. And it was great. I must've spoken at, I I funded it all out of my own pocket too, which was insane. But I I went to probably 30 or 40 colleges and universities around America talking about truth. And it was interesting because one of the examples I used was the women's cosmetics industry. And, you know, talk about crazy promises, right? Uh, you know, your, your average, especially on, even on the even low end, but especially high end women's cosmetics, they literally promise they'll reverse the flow of time or they will generate new skin or they will. I mean, it, it's it's amazing the nonsense that gets put in the marketing and branding for those products. And to a T, you ask a woman, ask your fiance, my wife you ask them, do they think it's, any of it's true? And their answer is, well, no, but on the off chance it might help, or what else am I going to do, right? They they know it's all a lie, but there's there, it's, it's almost resignation. And so in these presentations, and again, a lot of these rooms were full of many more women than men, which is a whole other topic, right? Which is, you know, why does the marketing and PR field kind of skew feminine, which is, I I can't answer that, but I'd love to get your thought on that. But I'm talking to these roomfuls and I said, so let me test on this idea for you. What if instead of, and I picked a brand for just arbitrarily Lancome, right? Great up high end, you know, L'Oreal, it's a great brand. I said, imagine if their general branding position was this, instead of saying, we're going to reverse the flow of time and make 60 year old women look like 14 year old girls, how about instead, the positioning and the marketing said this, not these exact words, you're going to age and it's inescapable. And what we are doing and what we will continue to do until the moment you give up on us is that we will innovate ways for you to look the best, the most confident and the most attractive as you possibly can. We will actually work to help you always be able to present yourself in the way you want to be seen in the world we will be your partner in that journey and we will be your reliable partner because we care about you as an individual and we care and respect you as a human being that's our promise as a cosmetics company and i'll tell you louie in more than one instance i had women in the room crying saying because i said it a lot better and they're like wow i would totally buy that i would i would be their their customer for life if they did that and you know what We haven't heard anything like that from a cosmetics brand ever, and we probably never will. So it's not so much reminding them of the importance of truth. It's really opening their eyes to how powerful the truth can be.
1: I I don't know what to say. You... I wanted to buy a cosmetic product as soon as you finish your sentences. I just wanted to be beautiful again.
0: <laughs> See, well, and 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 th- and I was and I thought about like, I did some work for L'Oreal years ago, and I'm thinking about like you know Catherine Deneuve and Helen Mirren and you know all you all these you know aging women who are stunningly beautiful because and every again ask women, I, I, you know here we are two guys talking about it, but. I, I've talked to a lot of women, and I, I'm married to one, and and it's you know, I have, we have a 21 year old daughter, and and she thinks the same thing, you know, it, this idea of I marketing and branding has to be based on selling you happy lies that you know are lies, and we know are lies, but let's just buy into it together <laughs> is not sustainable. It's not sustainable because the, tech, the technology, the internet, blows it up. And because experience proves it false.
1: There is this brand in Europe, once again, called Dove. Do you have it in the US? D-O-V-E? Yeah. Yeah, so
0: that's Unilever. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: they've tried something similar. So they what they've tried to do is to showcase to stop showcasing models and actually showcase real women, you know. With Mm curves, who are beautiful in their own ways, like, you know, normal, normal women. And I think, I think it had a huge impact in Europe in terms of advertising and, and, and people really connected with it. But I think that after a few months, people realized that they were photoshopping their pictures even then, you know, so like they (laughs) they kind of shot themselves in the foot. (laughs) I guess to come back to, to your point, and I completely agree with it, I, do you think it's because they've, always done it this way and they will never risk any, you know, any moves that would be innovating in terms of marketing. Do you think that's the reason why they, none of them have done it the way you said it? Yes. Fair enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And, and in fact, Louis, I'd never thought about it this way, but you're really, you're challenging me to think about this, which is great. Um, I would argue that truth, at, at real truth, objective truth, I sh- we shouldn't have to qualify it, but let's say truthy truth, the truth of truth. <laughs> is the actual disruptive idea that will blow up marketing it won't be in other words let's just you know again no slight to lancome or pick any brand maybelline i don't really care any of these cosmetics companies they're already getting blown up they're already getting disrupted by local small scale organically or sustainably based products and services they're getting already blown up by a culture that is allowing women to be less made up and less perfect in work settings and certainly in social settings, settings, right? So there are all these different factors underway that are undermining these brands' belief and these businesses' belief in the power of branding and this sort of happy consensual lie that they call brands, that I'm not certain they'll ever change, but they'll just become marginalized. And you know I mean think about it think about the power of Coca-Cola as a brand you know or Procter and Gamble and their various products like, you know they're the US version of Unilever and all the Thai dishwashing liquid and all the brands that they've they've literally written the book on how to create brands how to create perceived value when none exists They're all going to get blown up by the world by cultural change and by technology change uh, you know, already we're we here in my little town outside Chicago. We don't buy st- name brands for anything. I, you know, we we buy a local detergent that is sustainable and water soluble and doesn't destroy the, the the river. We buy all our produce at a local market instead of at the grocery store. Um, you know, I you know we buy clothing that doesn't have to be taken to the dry cleaners, which is going to transform retail. So I think that it's interesting that marketers when we look about marketing changing and marketing growing, I, I think a lot of it will will just they're gonna they're gonna be dead enders. They're gonna promote brands until the moment they retire or they're fired. And but it will change. You know, all those people in the rooms I was talking to in twenty twelve, they're all out there now. They have their they're into their first, maybe into their second jobs. And they're not going to take that shit for five seconds.
1: I love it. I wish I could contradict you because that's what <laughs> I do. I like to contradict people. But I actually agree 100%. And my prediction, <laughs> and I think our prediction, is that those brands will die, those companies will die, unless they yep. wake up and realize that, you know, just tell the truth to your customers. Just care about them and stop feeding them lies that are just nonsense and, and, and be real. Like, be real. Yep. Um. It's yep. amazing to see that, There is a comeback of the local shops and the local products. And, and it's exactly because of what you said, the fact that people do want to connect with companies and people. They want to have this, this connection emotionally and in their experience in the day to day. They want to touch things. They want to see things. They want to, they want to be trusted. They want to trust in return. And. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There's this good brand as well. I'm gonna ask the third question. The same third question. Do you know Lush? Have you? Uh, is is it in the US as well? I yeah, it's the soap yeah. brand, right? Where they
0: chop it off the block. Yeah. yeah, and
1: that's to me that's the exact opposite of all the L'Oreal and all those kind of brands because they yep. they value uh, you know they are against testing against uh with animals. They they actually use local products. I believe they have a very artisan like very kind of you know manual way to to do things to to do the products they put they let their employees in each in each store put the the liquid in each in each bottle so it's very much mm-hmm. more an experience you enter into the Lush store and you can smell all of those things and it's it's mm-hmm. it's completely the opposite of of what's going on in TV ads with L'Oreal telling you that you will feel beautiful again and and you have a small print 71% of 100, 100 women agree or you know this kind of like, right small ads, uh, prints, advertising that are just lies. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just I'm just uh,
0: <laughs> getting. Well, let me, let me give you another, and, and Louie, that's a great example, actually. I, Lush is a great example. Um, and, and let me give you another missed opportunity. So, again, P&G, big consumer products business here, you know, and, and literally, they, you know, we had soap operas here in the 50s, right, which were, you know, the daytime TV dramas for housewives to watch. And they were called soap operas because Procter & Gamble was the sponsor and they made soap. So it was always this drama brought to you by blah, 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 ivory soap or whatever. So, you know, they literally did write the book on marketing. They got a lot of positive coverage over the past couple of years for a program they did along with the Olympics where they were celebrating the moms of Olympic athletes. And they spent, I'm making this up, I don't know what the real number is, but I think it was, you know, north of 50, 60 more million dollars on these beautiful and and well done TV adverts, right? 30 second spots, 50 second, 15 second spots during the Olympics, you know, so, um, you know, blah, blah, blah is running the race or skiing, the whatever. And then, you know, here's her mom, you know, that who woke up every morning and took her to practice. And here's the mom who took his baseball uniform and washed it before, you know, you know, and thank you, credit to the moms, you know, whatever. And they got such, you know, credit. And I thought to myself, hmm, Does anybody know what Procter & Gamble's policy is for maternity leave for employees? Because to me, that matters more to me, and it matters more to my wife, and it matters more to my daughter than the $50 million they spent to celebrate some abstraction called moms. How do they treat moms who work in their factories? You tell me that, and tell me you value moms. And that could actually be enough for me to pick your soap. But I guarantee you, Louis, that thought never occurred to them. Because the marketers don't think in that way. And yet that's the way you differentiate. That's the way, to your point earlier, you engage with a business, not just this artificial construct of a brand. But, um, you know, I, what a, what an idea, you know, could a, and, that, and and in that way, Could a big global brand compete with a local artisan brand? Perhaps. Maybe because of their size and their strength, Procter & Gamble, Ivory Soap, could do more for the women in its employ than that local artisan can do for the woman who maybe owns the the vat that she's making the soap, but she actually has to work 18 hours a day to do it. And maybe they could make the case that we actually give our moms more freedom. I could choose to ignore it, I could choose to disregard it, I could choose to reject it or I could choose to embrace it. But they don't think that way. And I thought what a missed opportunity, but the marketing trades, my advertising age, and they're like, "Oh, this is a genius. This is wow. This is this is engagement marketing and all the other buzzwords." And I'm like, "No, it's just a pretty line." <laughs> uh <laughs>
1: Oh, I love this conversation. Um, <laughs> it goes back to, I think it goes back to the, it's not a trend. It's going back to the truth of, of companies yep. that, um, you know, like website like Glassdoor showcasing what mm-hmm. employees actually think of the business and they can do so anonymously. And you yep. can then rank companies based on that. I guess that's, you know, one step in the right direction. And I, I never thought about it this way with, with the story, like the, the example you you just gave, it makes complete sense. So I'd like to go, uh, I I had plenty of other questions, but I think think there's one question I need to ask first and foremost. Let's get actionable here. Let's try to give the listeners some actions they can, like they can make today or tomorrow in their job or as leaders in their company that would actually, you know, how can they make people believe what they say? Not in making them, as you said, like, pretty lies but actually how can they tell the truth what's the step
0: involved right yeah good question louis um so i think there's two answers right there's the there's the what could you stop doing and then what could you start doing and they're not one or the, and then the other they're not you know they're not linear but the stopping part is probably the easy more actionable one which is um if you look at the amount of B.S. that gets promoted by a brand in any given press release, in any bit of own content they're creating for the website, sometimes I wonder how the marketers produce that stuff with a straight face, you know, or you read the four sentence quote attributed to the CEO in a press release announcing some incremental innovation, right? Are megahertz transmitter has gone from 33 megahertz to 28 megahertz and then there's the quote from the ceo saying we're a leader in the internet of things and industrial 4.0 automated and transformation the first thing you can do is start to challenge and slow down the crap that gets put out right so stop making the problem worse so if you're a pr person um challenge yourself and challenge your ceo your executive client your customers to speak more honestly and more simply and stop trying to dictate and narrate what the world is and instead acknowledge it and 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 and, and allow it to be um, you know so the first part is to just kind of. P- Apply a litmus test of accuracy and truthfulness to the th- stuff you do, and so that's a that could be a subtle change, right? You're you're tasked with editing copy for an ad, or you're tasked with creating social posts. Um, challenge yourself to step, take a step back from the hyperbole. Challenge yourself to to take a step back from, you know, not just putting out something that is on brand, but is on truth and trying to find other subtle ways you can improve the quality of what you're already doing or at least avoid making things worse. And and that's something you could start doing without any approval, it's just simply, could be how you edit and how you think about the content you create. The harder one, the harder thing is to actually proactively start talking to your organization about ways to open up the door and being more transparent and more engaging in what the business is doing. Um, that's a harder path to hoe because there aren't a lot of really natural internal advocates for that. So but but the I think where that that conversation starts is simply in opinion polling and other behavioral analytics. Um, that can tell you whether or not your customers are as loyal as you think they are. And I think if you start surveying and start researching, not only how do customers and other stakeholders think about this weird construct called the brand, but if you start looking at other other questions about that relationship and that, you know, you know like some of the NPS stuff is kind of crazy, but, you know, generally it makes sense. You know, are, are, are you referring are you, are you a willing recommender? Um, questions like that to your customers and stakeholders. And then also looking at metrics outside of the marketing sphere, right? So that you can be doing a brilliant job on engagement on Facebook, yet um, your customer retention could be going down or your employee retention could be going down. But because those metrics aren't marketing metrics, they're business metrics, the marketers don't necessarily track them and i think if if you as a marketer want to start making fundamental change about and uh, and make your business more truthful you got to open your eyes to some of those other metrics so that you're really not just measuring what people think and how they feel cuz those are not necessarily predictive of future anything but open your mind and open your 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 reach to some of these other metrics what else is going on in the business that you could reasonably argue is a if not a direct effect at least a an indirect outcome of what you're telling the world you know I, again back to my former employer edelman does this survey every year called the trust indicator i think that's what yes. it's called trust barometer. trust barometer yeah and it's a fascinating thing right and, and and it's macrocosmic right so it's way too high level to be actionable necessarily but i still think it's really insightful because what's what it's saying most recently is that there's this really horrible gap between the small number of elites who understand, and if you will, understand the truth of your business, and then everybody else who's generally learned to be more distrusting, more cynical, um, and less loyal. These are big macro issues, right? That, you know, if you're at Coca-Cola, you might think, well, we're big, we're a great brand. That's, they're not talking about us. But yes, they are. Or if you're a Lancome, yeah, this is talking about you. So you know, to to kind of open up your mind as a marketer to see these bigger trends and see where they where they get a where where their impact is felt in the business, other than just your own marketing sliver. Um, that that's the bigger kind. I wish, you know, as I'm saying that, Louis, I realize I, I gave you no answer. <laughs> I, I, so that that's the hard, That's the harder yep. one. The easier one is that you can change the way you edit. You can change the way you write. You can change the way you conceptualize. You can do that on your own this afternoon.
1: I guess for for uh, let's say a marketer in a in a company where where this person is not a leader, where he or she doesn't have the power to change things right now. I guess one advice from right. what you're saying would be to literally send a survey to customers or even people outside of the, the customer and ask them with you know maybe adding a paragraph of text, a text or headline and say. To what degree do you feel you trust uh, this to be true, or something around those lines, right? And
0: yeah, yeah, I don't know how exactly. Yeah, not. I don't know how exactly to word it, but yeah, to, to ask for people's f- in uh, f- reaction. Yeah, if you be- be- bullshit or yeah, not, basically, yeah, like you exactly, know, exactly, right. And then exactly. coming back to the CEO yeah, okay. and say,
1: "Hey, ninety yep. percent of people thinks what we say is complete bullshit." right and that's right, a big right. that's a big way i think to to change to make change happens inside an organization
0: agreed and but you could but 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 you could just as easily not just as easily maybe even more easily you could go call up a friend in hr and say can i see some data on uh employee retention or on our conversion rate for in employee recruitment or you know how our average open rate for unfilled position whatever mm-hmm. the hell the metrics are in hr and you if you're a marketer and, and you actually you, you want to live and walk the walk and talk the talk, you could actually take that document and you could tee it up internally to your fellow marketers or even to senior executives and say, "This isn't our job. We don't recruit." But we wonder whether or not there's a connection between our efficiency and our success as marketers and as branders and as communicators and these numbers. There's no direct line. We're not tasked with them. We're not a volunteering to be responsible for them. But pose the question, what if these numbers and assuming they're going down, if they're going up, take credit for them, obviously, <laughs> but if they're going down, ask the question, could what we are saying to customers or to other stakeholders be impacting this? cuz our numbers don't our, our our marketing numbers you know we do the surveys and of course everybody loves what we do right cuz that's how you do surveys and marketing is you you <laughs> you make sure you're you're successful before you even run it we're we're doing fine but we're not happy with these numbers here and we wonder if we're having an effect on it or you could do the same thing to your supply chain and you could say okay vendor relations manager guy how are we doing in terms of the quality of vendors that we're getting applying to work with us or the, uh, pay, the net payables that we um, expect from the, the, the customers that we're doing work for, are they paying us on time or is that slowing down or is that speeding up? In other words, there are metrics business-wise across the enterprise that I would argue are at least indirectly affected by your trustworthiness mm. and your value as a communicator. We just don't look. Yeah. We just don't, we don't look there. And, and I think simply asking the question I, I think can change the kinds of answers you start looking at and looking
1: for. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and there is a trend in marketing where a lot of of digital marketers are in front of their computer all day and looking at Google Analytics and and their engagement yeah. metrics in social media. And I don't blame them, but it's true that there is one metric and one leading indicator that is not measured: distrust. Yeah. And right. If I think if distrust. Question or element was in every single dashboard in every single company in every single digital marketing department. I guess TV ads will be a little bit less cheesy and <laughs> all of that. um Two questions before Agreed. before we wrap up because we've been talking for like almost an hour and I didn't even
0: oh, oops, see no, about no. that. It's not okay. a problem. Oh, this is fun. You're a smart. guy It's not a
1: problem whatsoever. It's good. <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, <laughs> what do you know? about marketing today that will still be true in 10 years? And how can marketers, what should marketers learn today that they would still be able to apply in 10 years or 20 years?
0: Uh, The the fundamental point, Lou, would be that um, technology changes people don't and that any any marketing solution that presumes to suggest or to know that consumers or people are going to make decisions in different ways for different reasons is a fool's errand. And that I I think the marketers who assume that decision making of a consumer today is more similar than not to the way a medieval peasant made a decision about something in the 1400s, or a Victorian England, you know, barrister made in the 1800s. Those are the those are the Choices, the 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 basis upon which choices are made, and I don't mean it as a negative. I'm not being, I'm not talking down to consumers. I'm simply saying people are people, and and they don't change. So any of these solutions that suggest people are they're going to do things in different ways or for different reasons, I and I think this has driven a lot of our embrace of social media, particularly lately. I think in 10 years we're going to look back and go, boy, was that stupid, and it'll get replaced by some other wacky theory that helps marketers avoid the reality that convincing folks to part with their money requires truth. Full stop.
1: Uh it's funny because that's what I say in my team and that's what I try to say to as many people as I can is that marketing to me is it's all about understanding people so that we can provide them with mm-hmm. what they need and therefore by thinking by thinking with first principles what we know to be true is that, you know, psychology, human behavior, all this kind of stuff, art, fields that marketers should know inside out. We should, I believe, all, every marketer should study psychology or at least human behavior. I agree. Because that's the basis of marketing. Um, and mm-hmm. no new technology or no new tools will, will change that. There are billions of years of evolution behind us. There is a reason why we are
0: the way <laughs> we are, and it's not like in five years that it's going to change right and it's beautiful exactly. right if you want to be a successful marketer you have to have an inherent love and respect for humanity you can't look at it as a as an audience or segments to be able, exploited or used or manipulated you have to have a love of people mm-hmm. and it's empowering and that's why you know that's why I, I you know i i'd much rather talk about the poetry of marketing than the technology because i think ultimately it's about life, not about things. So anyway, another conversation. Yeah, I
1: think we need to. I think we need to schedule another another episode with you. Absolutely, because uh, there's so much more outside of your great books that we will, uh, by the way, share on the podcast notes and make sure oh, that people can can get access to. Is there any other resource uh, that you would recommend marketers to read today or view?
0: Uh, yeah, the short answer is no. Other than don't look at anything that has marketing in the headline. So I'm with you, Louie. I you know, I try to stay updated on neuroscience and on behavioral studies and truthfully read a book on history. Um, and you'll probably learn more or for that matter read a book of poetry and you'll probably learn more about marketing and about people than you could from uh, the latest and greatest marketing tome. I I got to say I don't you know, I stay current, but I I stopped going to marketing conferences a couple of years ago cuz it just got too redundant i just got too busy you know listening to people talk about how they just discovered something for the first time when again it's like my old girlfriend said the romans did that so uh you know i i would say the the best thing you can do as a marketer is open your mind to other activities and other professions
1: that's a great way to end this episode the last question where can listeners connect with you and hear more from you
0: Uh, So three quick ways. One, my personal site is jonathansalembaskin.com, where I list links to everything I do, my, my work, my agency work, and also my creative work. I'm a musician too, and so I'm... Uh, I have enough guts, again, to my white guy empowerment to actually post my songs and and risk people listening to them, which is scary. Um, Professionally, my agency, which focuses on on communicating innovation, primarily for large publicly listed B2B companies, uh, is ArcadiaLab.net, where we do describe our methodology. And we have a lot of free content on ways to think about and do PR differently. Primarily, we're focused on earned media. And then thirdly, we just, uh, because our company is Arcadia Communications Lab, we do various experiments and our latest experiment is a new site called innovationcommunicator.com where we are writing stories and helping brands share those stories, businesses share those stories um, as a news service for other media and for industry analysts. So it's a place where the idea that big companies can and should innovate is supported and evidence and we sh- we, we share examples so um, that's a news site and that's innovation fantastic
1: and uh, do you use twitter much or uh, linkedin oh yeah i do so
0: yeah i both so i'm on linkedin and uh my, my twitter is at jonathan salem so j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n-s-a-l-e-m and yeah, i think i have something like thirty thousand followers though i think uh, a fair number of them are bots but yeah well be that as you probably they're probably fake
1: i probably bought but yeah. them right i mean you know
0: yeah oh I, I didn't but but uh probably somebody did on my behalf so and so if you're out there thank you
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right i think that's the perfect way to end this episode uh jonathan right, thank you so much for your time once
0: again my pleasure louis thank you take care take care
1: uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyone good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again, and au revoir.